Henry Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had the Stephen James endorsement already attached. In our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil. And uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there. They're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of Harper Cons. And the 2015 Carol Award for debut novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. All right, today I've got with me a very good friend of mine. He's possibly my best friend. Oh. <laughs> um, and that's a uh, reference to another podcast that we literally finished about 13 seconds ago. That's right. Um, <laughs> Ted Cluck and I are partners in radio. We're partners <laughs> in publishing books. We're partners in many ways, but not always. You know, we're just partners. Let's keep it mysterious for them. Okay. You You don't need to know what it means. That's right. What you do need to know is that Ted has written, um, if we're talking indie and traditional, probably 30 plus books and traditional books, just traditional alone, maybe 25. Is that about the right estimate? Yeah, I say 25. That's what I, that's what I tell people. I think that's in the, that's in the ballpark. Ted is best known for a couple books, um, maybe four or five, actually, that really kind of stand out, come out the most. Why We're Not Emergent and Why We Love the Church that he wrote with Kevin DeYoung mm-hmm. and sold a gazillion copies were incredible books. If anybody wants to know who Kevin DeYoung is, we can yeah, talk right. about that later. Like, he's kind of fallen off the map. He's, <laughs> he's fallen on hard times. So. I would have thought that yeah. writing a book with you would have launched his career, but eh, it didn't really pan out. Oh, you, know? well, you know, people, people think that and... You know, who who can say, really? <laughs> so other books that people talk about are Facing Tyson, 15 Fighters, 15 Stories, which we're hoping Gut Check can come out with the actual audio book of that soon on Amazon. Yes. Uh, we can talk about that a little, too. And here's a weird thing. I don't know if you realize this, but mm-hmm. lately there's been a lot of buzz about Hello, I Love You again. Really? Why is that? I don't know, but I've seen like four or five people lately tweeting about it. Uh, in fact, really? let's talk about those two things. We don't have a ton of time. Okay. you got your crazy academic schedule. Yeah. I want to talk about three things. Okay. <laughs> One is, and this is probably a quick answer. Okay. You were a full-time writer when I met you. That was your job. Uh-huh. That was it. You wrote books. You sold them. You wrote columns. You sold them. That was your income. Yeah. So I knew you were doing that for seven or eight years, and then you kind of walked away from doing that full-time and entered academia, where now you can write but you don't have the time to sort of pursue it like crazy. So what's that like? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, academia brings with it some privileges. I mean, I get to use office as a verb, um, which is incredibly pretentious <laughs> in which I, I do it as often as I possibly can. So like, for example, um, if I'm walking you through my building on campus, I could say something like I office at the end of the hallway. And you would then stifle the urge to punch me in the throat. I want to punch uh, you right now. Yeah, now. <laughs> oh, I love it. Baby, that reminds me of a story that I got to tell you off the air. Okay. Okay. Um, 
<laughs> I just don't want you to forget. And I realize we're on the air and I don't want to use airtime for this. But to answer your question, um, I love it. I absolutely love teaching. I teach at Union University. I teach journalism. Um, and I'm kind of heading up the, the journalism program there. And um, I absolutely love it. It's, it's, it's a great thing for a writer because um, the academy provides for me and my family stability, you know, which is something that in all those years of freelancing, kind of feast or famine, we never really had that. So um, freelancing was great. I do miss it. I miss the absolute freedom of it. You know, I miss the, you know, being, being responsible, you know, eating what you kill kind of thing. And, and, you know, there was absolutely nothing tying us down, but, uh, at the end of the day, I'm really, really happy to be here and I'm really thankful for this job. And I hope, I hope it's the last one I ever have. I mean, I hope to ever, you know, to stay here until the end of my career for sure. So you just said you miss the freedom of the schedule, but do you miss the writing? Like, I mean, do you ever get that gnaw? Like, I haven't yeah. written a book book in some time now. Uh, you know, I don't really miss that uh, because I get to write still. So I'm writing columns. I write for uh, our local paper, but they're in a relationship with USA Today. So a lot of the stuff gets picked up by USA Today, which is fun. So I feel like kind of whenever I just want to dash something off, whenever I get the urge to say something, I've got a good outlet for it. So um, so no, I haven't really had this, this huge urge to write a book, although I am... Uh, I am currently writing a book, and I don't even know if I've mentioned this to you, but I'm writing a journalism textbook for a textbook publisher. I did not so, know that. What? Yes, yeah, so this is a brand new thing, a completely new challenge. Um, the publisher is Kendall Hunt, and they've been kind enough to let me write a journalism book. So uh, we'll see how that's going to turn out. And I, That's awesome. Yeah, that was really motivated by you know teaching these classes and just kind of having the textbooks be crappy and mediocre. <laughs> you know, and the students take textbooks and you know, they, we make them buy textbooks, but then I'm convinced they never use them and I don't even want to use them. So really, the, most of my classes are um, just reading people who are great at the craft anyway and talking about what makes it great. So, um, so yeah, I'm writing a textbook, man. It's going to be kind of narrative. It's going to be way different. It's going to be shorter. Um, and I hope it works. So I'm a little bit nervous, but I'm enjoying it. You're also co-writing a novel at present, are you not? Yes, I am. I'm co-writing a follow-up novel. So it's a sequel, actually. Uh, it's called Re-Raptured Again. It's a, uh, a hilarious rapture sequel, an end times novel. And um, I think, you know, I don't want to speak for you, Zach, but I think it's probably the best thing that either of us have ever done uh, <laughs> together or apart. So um, I'm confident in saying that. I'm confident that um, I think anyone who purchases this, it will be their favorite novel of all time. <laughs> yeah, I would probably. say it's the greatest thing anyone's ever written. You know, I agree. It's gonna it's gonna kind of hit the canon right there in the in that sweet spot of To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, <laughs> you know, it'll be assigned reading in like middle schools, like eighth grade. I think will will be kind of the wheelhouse for for this novel. But uh, dude, can you imagine? Humor level might be eighth grade. Yeah, can you can you imagine getting assigned Re-Raptured and Re-Raptured again in uh, in an eighth grade class? I should have been so lucky, right? Dude, seriously, I would have liked school so much more. Quick story: I was uh, I was out at dinner with uh, with a couple of couples after church this last <laughs> Sunday, and the 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 woman on in one of these couples indicated that you know she she's she's like a businesswoman, right? So she's out there, she's making deals, she's doing doing business, making things happen, and she indicated that she had run out of real estate podcasts to listen to. Oh boy! And she was like, I was. Yeah, she was like, I was looking for something to listen to. So I Googled Ted Cluck podcast and she was like, I listened to the Woolery episode of the Gutcheck podcast, in, which for me was like one of my favorite apps of all time, both to do oh, yeah. and to listen to, because I listened to all of the episodes of our podcast of the Gutcheck pod. I listened to every minute of every episode. <laughs> so she indicated that she listened to Woolery 
And she was especially taken aback by um, our chapters, our re-raptured chapters, because there was a kind of a deep dive into the into the um, the world of Ultra Jest. So this this drug, yes. this drug that we'd created that uh, that quickens the gestation period in certain Calvinist women. So um, <laughs> she was both fascinated by it and offended by it. That was the dynamic. And, and horrified. Yeah, that's the sweet spot. Yeah, I'm like, you know what? This is work to them. I feel good about it. <laughs> Now, I want to ask you about something that's on my mind, which is having written mm-hmm. a book that was published by a major publisher and going, I'd like mm-hmm. to make an audiobook of that. Um, yes. How did that go? And what do you think we learned in that process? And what are the odds for me going forward? Yeah, great questions. Well, I, how it went on my end from a right standpoint consisted of me writing an email to my editor at the Lions Press uh, at the time, who was really cool, um, and saying, hey, I'd like to make an audiobook out of Facing Tyson. Are you guys going to do anything with it in that regard? And him saying, go for it. Um, and then like a week later, I got a little like rights relinquishment contract in the in the mail, and I signed it and sent it back. And um, the audio rights belonged to us at that point. So, you know, on that end, and in that, in that particular case, it was really easy. Um, here's what I remember about recording. I remember that we went into my basement in Michigan at the time, which had a full size boxing ring in it, uh, which in and of itself is a long story, but, uh, I used to manage a heavyweight boxer. We would spar down there. You and I used to spar down there, which was a lot of fun. And we turned that ring area into a makeshift studio through a series of, uh, you know, partitions and quilts and whatnot <laughs> and, and, and Rachel Ray magazines. And, um, you know, we fashioned a, we fashioned a makeshift studio. We recorded the book in like three days. Um, we forced like my kids and our wives out of the house yes. for three days, which was, um, you know, the quietest three days I think I've ever, I've ever spent in that home. And, uh, we recorded the book. It was a blast. It was an absolute blast. And our challenge was how to get the book on Amazon. So, you know, we, I think we enlisted a variety of kind of skeevy audio hosting, you know, sites where people could download the book and it, it, we sold a few copies, but it hasn't been the, you know, the windfall, the avalanche of money that I thought it would be Zach. So, uh, I would say go into it and and do it because you really want to do it. And because you really want to hear your voice reading your book. Um, but maybe don't expect like to, to buy the summer home with the proceeds from it. (laughs) Well, one of the beautiful things about indie is that your books are never dead. They're never out of print. So, for example, you were surprised when I said, hello, I love you, because that's probably been remaindered at this point, and you've probably got like a garage full of them. Dude, I do, and hats off to Moody Publishing for allowing me to have the garage option. (laughs) Um, A lot of publishers will just pulp your books and then like let you know that they did it or like not even let you know, but Moody was like, Hey, we've got 1200 of these. Do you want them? And I was like, of course I do. So, uh, so yeah. So if you want a free copy of hello, I love you adventures <laughs> in adoptive fatherhood and you can make it to my garage. Um, <laughs> God bless you. They're there. I don't know that you want to open that door. Literally that garage door. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't want to open the garage door into that idea, but, uh, you know, if, if, if they are that committed to it, I will open the garage door for them, but only for a few moments. <laughs> The thing is, though, once you have a book that you own the rights to, whether it's mm-hmm. your own book or the rights have been reverted or selective rights have been reverted. We were just talking about this a couple weeks ago. 
we had an idea for how we can get it on Amazon that the only thing holding us back at this point is a couple like technical right. details. Once we get it up there, though, we can promote the heck out of it. Absolutely. So it will never be out of print, quote unquote. I mean, that kind of concept is in general slowly falling away. Right. But yeah. POD, books on, I <laughs> said so books on tape. Digital audio. Dude, now here's an idea that, that makes me think of something. What if we did a tape version? <laughs> I want to do I want to do a version of Facing Tyson on a cassette tape. I did put together some CDs that one time. Did you ever move any of those? Dude, yeah. I think I, I moved all of them, I think. Nice. Believe it or not. So, yeah, those were great. It's the last books on CDs sold. Dude, I kept a set for myself. Don't think for a minute that I didn't. Oh, you got to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I remember I thought it was money that I had shrink wrapped those things and I handed you these shrink wrapped CDs. Oh, I thought that was so money. Dude, I was was so excited about the shrink wrap. That's yeah, that was that was so next level to me. You know, (laughs) who is this wizard? Who who are we? Who do you think we are? Jay-Z shrink wrapping our (laughs) self-published audio book? Get out of here with that. (laughs) Let me ask you one more question. This one's deep, though. This is like a Garfield Eyes level, glum episode kind of soul question. Through 25 books, now you don't really miss writing that kind of book with that kind of contract. Yeah. When did the magic die and why? And did it happen all at once or kind of slowly? Oh, this is a great question. This is fascinating. And I, I truly only have like three minutes. Um, well, end it in three minutes, man. I'm going to end it in three minutes. When did the magic die? Um, I think the magic died, Zach, when I had to start ghostwriting to pay the bills. And that's this is not a me impugning ghostwriting because that was that was like God's provision for a time. And, and even a couple of those projects were really fun and life-giving. But um, for every fun, life-giving ghostwriting project, I had a couple that were just like soul-suckingly hard and kind of embittering for a time. So yeah, that was, that was when the magic died. That was when I was like, I, this is just an industry. You know what I mean? There's, there's not much about this. This is magic. That's, that's magical. You know, this is just an industry. It employs a lot of people. There's product being turned out, but, um, I lost kind of the romantic view of what it is that I did. And I, I I actually think all kidding aside, I think it's important for writers to, whatever little technique you use to kind of maintain the romance in your writing life, I think you need to do it. Like, and for me, mm. sometimes it's just like taking a break and reading some great books or watching movies that glamorize writing and make it look cool. Um, I think that's an important thing to do because I think, you know, it's good to remind ourselves that, yeah, like getting paid to write a book is a pretty cool thing. Even if, you know, the deal's not perfect or the, you know, the circumstance behind your book isn't perfect. It's still a pretty cool thing at the end of the day to get to get paid to write. So, um, so yeah, that's it, man. That's the that's the answer to your glum, you know, dead Garfield eyes existential question. I hope it's I hope it's okay. It strikes me that your first book was uh, Paper Tyson. Tiger, right? Oh, yeah, Tyson was the first one. Okay, mm-hmm. it strikes me that your second book was his Paper Tiger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, both of these. You're riding in buses, you're traveling all over the place, you're in these yeah. gritty diners and the gym with Marvis Frazier mm-hmm. and bad part of town. Yeah. You're on the bus with the semi-pro football team. You're mm-hmm. in it, you're doing it, you're living it. It's magic. Yeah. And then to take that, you know, that that football book idea, yeah. flip it upside down, and now you're writing it for someone else. Yeah. And you're creating a cog, you're becoming yeah. a cog. I can mm-hmm. see how that could just kind of jade you, yeah. steal the joy from you. 
No, you're absolutely right, man. You're absolutely right. And I think that immersive, you know, in the moment kind of thing is my, is my wheelhouse. Like for me, that's, I think as I look back on my career, those are going to be the ones that I, that I want to read again and that I'm proud of. And, um, you know, but they're all, they all served a purpose, you know, and that's the fun thing about it. Just being able to look back and see how, you know, God took care of us with, with this project or that. So, um, yeah, thankful for all of them for sure. Thank you so much, Ted. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thanks for asking great questions. I appreciate it, baby. A Novel, Chapter 28 Dan Barton eased on the brake and squinted at the sign. There were no streetlights out here, and even with his high beams on, he was practically on top of the intersection before he could make out the street name. Technically, he was supposed to be wearing glasses, but he never did. As he passed the cross street, he could finally make out the word Trowbridge Road, not what he was looking for. He swore and punched the gas again. He didn't know this area. Why would he? The Barton family lived in the new subdivision on the east side, not some podunk farmhouse or boondock trailer park. When the text from his dad had arrived, he'd been hanging with his boys at the pizza parlor and making some progress with Sadie DeWitt. Now he was out here, undoubtedly getting mud all over his freshly detailed car. It had only rained for about half an hour earlier in the night, but it came down hard, like biblical flood type stuff. Oh well, the mud would wash off, Sadie would be there tomorrow night, and it wasn't like he could say no, anyway. His 2008 Ford Flex wasn't really his, and Dad never let him forget it. Sure, he'd been allowed to get the spoiler installed, and he covered the insurance payments from his own pocket, but that didn't change the fact that it was still Dad's car, and Dad was more than ready to take it back at any time, for any reason. There it was, Coit Road. Dan slowed down, missed the entrance, and had to drive more than half a mile before he found a spot to turn around. This was stupid. Weren't there actual cops who got paid to drive all over town at the chief's orders? Come to think of it, this wasn't even in town. He'd passed the now-leaving-clinch-rock-come-again-soon sign nearly ten minutes ago. Maybe Dad was out of his jurisdiction. Maybe he needed someone he could really trust. Someone like his only son. Turning onto the dark access road, he felt a tinge of fear and excitement. The front driver's tire dropped down into a rain-filled pothole, and as the car bounced back out, his lights glinted off the heavy chain spanning the dirt drive, and the park-closed sign suspended from it. Slamming on the brakes, he felt his car slide in the mud and connect with the heavy steel links. The chain stretched back, but didn't break. Dan cursed again and shifted into reverse. It took a moment for the tires to win traction, and as he slowly backed up, the chain came with him, now connected with the grill somehow. A triple knot formed in his stomach. Dad was going to kill him. Dad, who was allegedly somewhere nearby. Finally, the car and the chain separated, and the metal sign dropped to the ground. Maybe there was no damage, he thought. Maybe Dad hadn't seen it happen. Things usually worked out for Dan Barton, he reminded himself, as he opened the car door and stepped out into another mud puddle, drenching his shoe and sock up to the ankle. Dad, he called out, you here? His phone buzzed. Keep your voice down, the text read. I see you. Take a step toward the front of the car. 
Dan obeyed, stopping just short of the high beams, which shone out to illuminate the black space between trees. No one out there. Another message buzzed in. Hold your phone up as high as you can. Why? He typed and hit send. Just do it. Dan complied, rising up onto his toes and extending his arm up high, bringing the top of his phone nine feet off the ground. The glow of the screen barely illuminated the roof of the car, and Dan was thinking about turning on the flashlight when the device exploded in his hand. Just gone. One moment it was there, and the next it was blasted out of existence, as though taken out by a sniper. Before he could begin to process this, he saw a flash of blue cut through the outer rim of the far headlight, and someone slid over the hood of the car, Dukes of Hazard style. The sharp edge of a boot heel dug into his hip, and Barton slipped down into the mud. He rolled twice before coming to rest on his elbows, covered in muck. Looking up, he saw his assailants, a woman in a blue skirt and leggings with blue hair. She slid in behind the wheel of the flex and pulled the door shut. Hey! Dan shouted, rising frantically and lunging toward the car, only to feel his feet slip out from under him once again. The car backed up ten feet, spraying muddy water all over him, and came to a stop, halfway to where the dirt drive met the highway. Barton stood again, slower this time, and took a successful step. Then another. The car was idling now, and through the headlights, Dan could barely make out the driver under the feeble glow of the dome lamp. She was going through his gym bag. What was going on? And where was Dad? Dan was just a few steps shy of the car when the woman leaned out the open window and asked, Do you have a pen in here? Nonchalantly, as though she'd stopped him on the street. Uh, yeah, Dan said. In the glove box. Where did he know this chick from? Her voice was younger than he expected, and she was hot, which he realized was a weird thing to think about someone who'd just kicked him into the mud and seemed to be stealing his car, but still, he loved the blue hair and the heavy makeup. She was tossing maps and napkins from the glove compartment, then came out with a small spray bottle in a vinyl case. Pepper spray, she said. Seriously? You're such a pansy. Barton took another step toward the car. Uh, that was my mom's. It's not... Oh, here we go. Perfect. She bit the cap off the Sharpie and started writing a string of numbers on the back of his practice shirt. He smiled. Whoever she was, she was into him, of course. Sadie was all right, but this was different. Exciting. Crazy chick literally coming out of the woodwork to give him her number. They'd have a great story about how they met. Hey, hand me those sweats, he said. Let me get out of these muddy clothes. The blue-haired girl tossed the t-shirt at him. Wait, this wasn't right. She'd written way too many digits. What is this? He asked. GPS coordinates. That's where you'll find your dad. I chained him to a tree. You chained my dad? What? It's a long story, but trust me, he had it coming. Anyway, you should probably get there ASAP. It's starting to get cold out. Oh, and you're going to need some bolt cutters. You know, for the chain. Barton grabbed the door handle and yanked. Locked. The blue-haired chick smirked at him and shifted into reverse. A flash of rage crackled up his spine, filling his temporal lobes. The same rage that had flattened countless linebackers on the turf and pinned champions on the mat. He grabbed for a handful of blue hair, but the car was backing up again. Faster this time. She laughed. It was so familiar. How did he know her? Oh, come on, Danny, she called. 
You can do better than that. He growled and began running alongside the car as it picked up speed. The window was closing now, literally and figuratively. Dan dug deep and picked up the pace. He'd break the window, drag her out by that stupid blue hair. No one made a fool of Dan Barton. The car pulled out onto the road. As the chick with the blue hair shifted into drive, she caught his eye and winked coyly. Something clicked in Barton's head. Recognition, just as he lost his footing. He landed back in the mud with a slap. The car disappeared into the distance. Dan lay there in the mud. Wait, bag lady? Trent felt the metal cuff loosen its grip on his left wrist and then slip off. Finally, the maneuver was much harder than it seemed, and he dropped the key twice in the process, losing it in the seat cushion the second time. Fishing it out had been so gross he'd momentarily forgotten the imminent danger they were facing. Looking out the window, he recognized the road, long and bare, lined with drainage ditches on both sides. He was certain they were headed to the old lumber camp, and they'd be there soon. Sean and Terrell were in the midst of a heated debate, although it was hard to tell about what, over the sound of the wind whipping in through the broken window. Trent carefully pulled the diary from his waistband under his t-shirt and opened it on the seat next to him. The greenish backlight of his watch was enough to help him navigate to the right month, February 1893, not 20 pages from the beginning of the diary. If only he'd started from the front of the book like a normal person, he'd have found this entry a week ago. Still, he'd become rather adept at reading Walcott's wild penmanship and was surprised to find himself able to skim through the slanted cursive text. February 1 detailed a revival meeting, attended by only three men, one of whom had been very drunk, followed by a prayer of lament regarding the minister's lack of converts thus far. There was no entry for the second, and the third was quite short, just a catalog of tasks he'd accomplished that day. The fourth, however, was several pages long. Trenton glanced up at the front seat. He hadn't been noticed, yet. His heart bucking against his ribcage, he began reading about what Walcott called a most encouraging and providential day. The preacher had been visiting the lumber camp, offering Bibles to the camp workers, when the lumbermen returned for the evening meal. The camp cook had asked Walcott to stay and say grace for the men. Little did I know, Trent read, what distinguished man would be in attendance, inspecting the enterprise that had made him wealthier than any man I have ever met. A harsh beam of light suddenly blinded Trent. What you got there, Marsh? Sean asked. He let out a deep, cruel laugh. Hey, Tango, you're going to want to pull over. I think I found what we're looking for. Judith parked at the curb in front of the police station. A hand-lettered sign on the front door read, Sorry, we're closed. Call 911 for emergency. Of course they were keeping the place locked down. With the chief in the holding cell, they couldn't afford drop-ins or looky-loos. She surveyed the outside of the small building. The windows were reinforced with wire mesh, none of them lower than eight feet off the ground. There was an emergency exit next to the cornerstone, erected 1898, but no handle on the outside. No, there was only one way in right up the steps to the front door. She reached into her right boot and withdrew the handcuffs. This was going to be tricky. One wrong move and she'd find herself cellmates with Adam. No, that couldn't happen, she whispered the words of the Angelus prayer. 
pour forth your grace into my heart, that as I have known the incarnation of Christ, your Son, by the message of an angel, so by his passion and cross may I be brought to the glory of his resurrection. She could hear the church bells from the YouTube video clanging in her head and the hardcore Latin chanting. It was working. She added, Lord, keep Adam safe. Give me strength and speed and send your angels to help me. Amen. Judith opened the door and was halfway out of the car when she remembered Barton's pepper spray. Expires February 2006, the bottle said, a dozen years ago. Uh, One more thing, Lord, she said. I really need this little can of mace to work. Bet you don't hear that very often. The squad car squealed to a stop on the empty road, and Terrell stepped out. Trenton panicked and chucked the diary out the open window. He heard the cops shout in protest, and then the sploosh of the old book landing in the ditch. Terrell reached into the car, grabbed two fistfuls of Trent's shirt, dragged him out through the window, and dumped him to the ground. Go get it, he ordered. And don't even think of running if you want to see your old man again. Trent crossed the street in the moonlight and walked along the side of the road, peering down into the ditch. He prayed that Judith was even now coming to her senses and calling the authorities. Any authorities. All of them. Sure, she'd done incredible things today, but even Judith had to see that breaking a man out of jail was beyond her abilities. The squad car pulled up next to him and the spotlight came to life, shining down into the ditch, slowly sweeping back and forth. Wait, Trent shouted. Go back. The leather-bound book was floating along in the murky water, caught up in the suction current. Well, what are you waiting for? Terrell demanded, opening the car door hard into Trent's back, propelling him down into the ditch. The water was pleasantly cool as Trent stood and began wading along in it, easily catching up to the book and snatching it from amongst the other floating debris. Climbing back out of the ditch, however, was a lot more difficult. The steep incline was covered in slick, wet grass. Oh, for crying out loud, Terrell said, taking a step down halfway into the ditch and extending his long arm. Grab on. Trent knew immediately what Judith would do grab that lanky cop by the wrist and jerk him down into the ditch, use a knee to pin his head underwater while she relieved him of his gun. But Trent just took his captor's proffered hand and felt himself yanked up to street level, where he was rewarded with an open hand to the face that nearly knocked him back down into the water. Terrell grabbed the waterlogged book, gave it one hard shake, and tried to flip through it. The pages were sticking and the ink was running, which Trenton supposed was both good news and bad. Good for leverage, bad for Terrell's temper. You're making it worse, dude, Sean warned from the passenger seat. Just set it up here by the heater to dry it off. Terrell fixed Trent with a look of pure hatred. For a moment, it felt like he was building up to another blow. Then he took a deep breath and said, almost pleasantly, one more little trick and I'll kill you. Adam sat on the bench at the rear of the cell and prayed. A half an hour earlier, he'd given up on winning Jesse over and turned to a higher source for help. He'd been praying for justice to be done, for God to confound the plans of the wicked, and mostly for Trent's safety. As far as Adam knew, his son was still up at the camp in the UP, pleasantly oblivious to all this and insulated from it, and yet he felt an enduring sense of disquiet. But now, out of nowhere, it was replaced by an overwhelming need to pray for Judith, for her to have wisdom and a clear head, for her to remain tethered to reality, however this should all unfold. 
That's when the pounding on the station door began. What, people in this town can't read? Officer Cash grumbled, his feet still propped up on the desk, portly frame wedged into his chair, immersed in his movie. Adam stood and approached the bars of his cell. The surveillance cameras, both inside and out, fed to a bank of monitors which faced the chief's office. And, as it happened, this particular cell. In fact, Adam was the only one in the building who could see the black-and-white image of Judith standing just outside, metrically banging the door with her fist. She had a wig on, from the looks of it. He might not have even known it was her, but for the fact that she was wearing the same crazy getup Jay Fisher had described the week before. Judith, what are you doing? Hey, Jesse, do me a favor and get rid of this illiterate hick, Cash called out. My favorite part's coming up. Oh, you don't need to bother, Adam said. I mean, you posted a sign, right? They'll go away. I'm not going to tell you again, Marsh, Cash said. Shut up. Adam held his breath and willed her to just accept that the place was closed and be on her way. Right, because that sounded like Judith. Bang, bang, bang. Judith pounded the door all the harder, wrapping the metal of the cuffs against the solid oak. If they didn't answer soon, she might have to move on to plan B, although she didn't really have a plan B. Pull the door off its hinges somehow? Smoke the dirty cops out of the building? Just then the door opened a few inches, and Jesse Finn's face appeared. Sorry, we're clo- The word folded in on itself. What are you supposed to be? His eyes drifted past her to the street, and he called out, Hey, John, come here a minute. Isn't that Chief Barton's car? Please, sir, let me in, Judith begged, hands clasped behind her back. They're after me. Who's they? Jesse opened the door wider, giving Judith a clear view past the front desk and the old-timey wooden rail to the grid of officers' desks and the holding cells beyond. She avoided Adam's gaze and instead focused on Officer Cash, sitting slack-jawed at his desk, watching TV. He was the wild card here. She had to be quick, vicious. Sorry about this, Jesse, Judith said, raising the pepper spray and pushing her thumb down against the trigger. A feeble red stream arced out, catching Jesse full in the face. He took an involuntary step back and brought his hands instinctively to his eyes, hacking and wheezing. Judith lunged at him, shoving him back into the front desk with her shoulder. She secured one of the handcuffs around his left wrist, then jumped the desk, yanking Jesse across, and locked the other end of the cuffs to a file drawer. Cash frantically kicked his stubby legs, scrambling to his feet, spilling a tower of files in Judith's direction. She approached quietly, steadily, kicking open the low spring-loaded gate in the rail that separated off the bullpen. Don't move! Cash shouted before his gun had even cleared its holster. Judith smirked. Step aside, Johnny Cash. The chief is coming with me. Not happening. Hands on your head, Cash warned. I swear, I'll fire. From behind her, Jesse called out, (coughs) She's just a kid! Put the gun away! He was pouring the remains of a bottle of spring water onto his eyes. Listen to Sergeant Finn, Adam urged. No one needs to get hurt here, John. (coughs) Too late for that, Jesse wheezed. Okay, no one else needs to get hurt. Shut up, Marsh! Judith laughed in that sort of a practiced, pretentious way that rich people laugh on TV. Come on, Johnny. You really need a gun to deal with a teenage girl half your size? Or, I don't know, the third of your size? Jesse had his keys out, struggling with the handcuff lock. What did you put in here, 
Gum? Yeah, Judith answered. Hubba bubba, it's a watermelon blast. Hands on your head, Cash repeated, and get on your knees. Are you even listening to me? Judith bent down and picked up the remote control from the top of the fallen tower of files at her feet. I don't think I have your full attention. She raised the remote at the cop, mirroring his stance, and clicked off the television. Dropping her hands to her sides, she pointed the remote at the security camera and pushed the volume button. Dot, dot, dash. Dot, dot, dash. She finally made eye contact with Adam. He nodded. Invisible to the naked eye, the infrared light from the remote lit up the image on the security camera like a three-pound mag light. She began tapping out her message, dots and dashes coming automatically. G. U. Last chance, Cash practically whispered. I've seen gunshot wounds. You don't want in on that. Really? You're going to shoot me? An unarmed girl? In a police station? N. T. If I have to, Cash said. No, you're not. Not in front of the chief of police. And what about Jesse? H. R. U. Actually, Jesse probably can't see, but he's not stupid. That's two witnesses. In her peripheral, she could see Adam spelling in his head. B. A. You think Jesse will lie for you? Because I don't think he wants any part of this. R. S. Sudden recognition dawned on the chief's face. He shook his head vehemently and mouthed, No. Cash holstered his gun. All right, how about I just tase you instead? You can flop around on the floor. Pee yourself, I don't care. Maybe you'll bite through your tongue. Judith tossed the remote. Okay, officer, you win. She dropped to her knees, her weight balanced on the balls of her feet. Looking up at the cop, she said, Be gentle with me. I'm just a girl in the world. That's all that you'll let me be. Cash snapped his cuffs from his belt and took a step toward the gate. You have the right to shut your stupid mouth. Anything you say can and will, Judith launched herself into his frame, connecting with his stomach and driving his ample mass three feet up off the ground. She'd done it a hundred times before. Only instead of dropping him to the mat, she slammed his shoulder blades against the metal bars behind him and, reaching out as wide as she could, grabbed a bar in each hand, pulling inward, crushing the cop against the hard iron. Jesse pulled his own taser out. I'm going to zap her, he called out. My vision's coming back. Sort of. No, don't, Cash managed through clenched teeth. It'll tase me too, dummy. He slammed his forehead down against Judith's, bringing stars into her field of vision. She loosened her grip, and Cash pressed the advantage, bringing a knee up to her stomach, then landed a solid kick into her chest, blasting her to the floor, where she slid six feet along the worn hardwood. Bad move, brat, Officer Cash said, taking a step toward her. He reached for his sidearm. It wasn't there. Like a statue, John, Adam said, gun-trained on his captor's back. Jesse drew his own gun. Come on, Chief, keep your head here. You don't want any more trouble than you've already got. Put it down. I don't answer to you, Jesse. You answer to me. Remember? I swore you in when you were practically a kid. We've had each other's backs for years. These things they say I did, I didn't do them. You know that. And for what it's worth, I'm sorry I didn't recommend you as Chief. Believe me, I wish I had. 
but this ends tonight. I'm locking Cash up in here, and I'm bringing in Barton and Terrell too. So tell me, Jesse, are you with me or not? Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2018, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel, copyright 2018, Gut Check Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, the way God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Gut Check Press!